can be seated. And if you have children, you can dismiss them to children's ministry. And if you will open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we're going to be reading from verse 31 to the end of this chapter. 31, we've looked at a couple weeks in a row. Acts chapter 9, verse 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a man, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to meet two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So it's, it's really interesting to, to get moments where you realize how much time has gone by without you realizing it. It's really interesting to have like a, a season of life where you're swept down into some kind of um, shoots and ladders momentum. It's like, I didn't even notice that I've been traveling so quickly. The first year that we came to Providence was the fastest year of Angela and I's entire life. It went by so quickly. Momentum is an inevitable kind of thing. We're, we're dealing at this church more often nowadays with question, the kinds of questions that 20-somethings ask. And it is an incredibly complicated, uh, strategic decade of life. Like most of the big decisions have to happen in that first decade. And there's this incredible kind of, I think, correct fear of missing out. It's like, if I say yes to this, then what am I saying no to? And so on and so forth. And what you see in this passage is just, just something I thought it would be an, an important aside. And that is, momentum is just an inevitability. Even in Peter's life here, you know, he just, he starts one thing and then it leads to another thing and then it leads to another thing. And, and really, I think that the main reason for the inclusion of these stories in Acts chapter 9 is we need to know why Peter is where he is when he winds up going to Cornelius. This is the big move, the big pivot point in the book of Acts when Peter goes to Cornelius and he's staying at someone's house named Simon, who was a tanner. But the idea, the image here in this, this string of incidents is that Peter does one thing and then that one thing leads to another thing and then that thing leads to another thing. And that's really just the way life is. Momentum isn't a bad thing. 
uh, being caught up in momentum is just an inevitability. It's just part of life. You will just have seasons of life where you look back and say, my goodness, I don't even know what I really did for the last couple of years. Here's the key. Momentum's not the problem. It's just starting in the right direction. To begin with, that's the problem. Because if you start in the wrong direction, momentum will come and you'll be 12 steps further down the wrong road than you'd even realized you'd be when you started. But, but on the other hand, if you set out to make a good decision, if you set out in the right direction, well, momentum will pick you up there too and you'll wind up 12 steps down the right road. And you'll look back and I'm, I'm convinced that, that some of the, the biggest successes we'll have in our lives catch us by surprise. They're just, they're just the consequences of consequences of consequences. We, we could have never planned for them to take place the way they did. But here's what we did do. We set out in a particular direction. We made a particular priority. You know, when, when Angie and I were quite a bit younger, we might have even been in our 20s, I think we were. We kind of were having this moment of this discussion of what are we gonna be about? Like what, what's worth our time and so on. And I remember we talked and we prayed and we talked and we prayed, we just like, you know, not, not very seriously, just kind of randomly talking here and there. And I remember Angela said, there are only two things that are gonna last forever, God's word and people. So we should probably invest in that. And so you say yes to this direction and then 20 years happens and momentum happens and things happen. And you know, you, know, you, didn't, you didn't know all of this. You just said yes to a general direction. And that's what happens with Peter here. He, he has an opportunity. Yes, we'll talk about this later. He has some peace. He has a, a moment where, um, where he has some rest. The churches are doing well. But he has kind of decided he's about two things. He's about strengthening the church and spreading the gospel. Those are his priorities. And because of those are his priorities, he takes one step toward fulfilling those priorities. He goes to this town to visit some saints. And then, you know, momentum takes care of the rest. Before you know it, he's with Cornelius. Sharing the gospel with the Gentile and seeing God, God's great purpose for including all peoples in the adoption of the gospel. So, so there's just this interesting idea. And what I really want to talk about today is just how to make the big choice, how to, how to make the big first step. All of the little things take care of themselves, but you kind of just have to decide, well, what do I want to be about? Like Angie and I did while we were driving down some country road, and she said, you know, two things last forever, God and his word, let's be about that. What's the big choice? What's the big picture here? Well, to give you that, I, I, I want to try to, uh, to introduce, and I, and I hope that you'll see how this is all related shortly, I want to try to introduce uh, myth back into our conversation. I think in many respects, we need to re-mythologize our Christian faith, meaning there is nothing ordinary about our Christian faith, right? So I don't mean re-mythologize, meaning make it false. I mean, just get the dragons back in, right? Get the dragons, get the battles, get some Mordor going, you know? You know, that's what I mean. I mean, I mean there's nothing really ordinary about our lives. We were wrestling against, you know, principalities. Like, we're, there's nothing ordinary about this. So I think we need to be careful sometimes to not forget that behind the veil, there's a completely uh, far more Tolkien-esque kind of reality that we're experiencing. There's, a, there's a, a legend that I want to walk you through as we interact with this text today. And that's the legend of St. George. Now, 
This is probably one of the most famous dragon slaying legends in the, in the pantheon of dragon slaying legends. And so the idea, and there's a lot of commonalities to this story and many other dragon slaying stories, but, but the idea is that uh, there's a dragon outside of town and he's terrorizing the village. And, and at first the villagers make peace with the dragon. That's always the, the wrong thing to do, by the way. Uh, he makes peace with the dragon and feeds them, feeds the dragon some sheep. And the dragon are okay, the dragon's okay with the sheep for a little while, but then he's like, ah, I want more. And so they bring him a, a, a sheep and a man. And like, here, have one sheep and one man. And that's always, you know, you don't, don't compromise with the dragon. And soon enough, the dragon's like, I only want people. And eventually the dragon decides, like, I only want children. So now the village is caught up in this never-ending cycle of mortgaging their future uh, through the compromise with the dragon. That's what sacrificing your children is in a myth. It's, mor it's mortgaging your future. It's letting go of your, your prospects, your, your possibilities. And so when you, when you have a dragon that you don't want to face like, like they did, that you, you form a bureaucracy, and the bureaucracy was a drawing that they did every week. Uh, or every time the dragon wanted a person, they would form a drawing and they would draw all the, they would have all the kids' names in a hat, you know, it's probably like a magician's hat or something, I don't know. But, but they would draw one out and then like whoever's name came out of the hat, that was the kiddo that had to be fed to the dragon that time. And eventually, as this story goes on and on and on, they draw the king's daughter's name out of a hat. And she is this, you know, princess. She's this virginal princess. And they're like, uh, the king says, I'll give you a ton of gold if you don't make me sacrifice my daughter. And the villagers all say, no, the dragon wants the daughter, not the gold, like, no. And so the king presents his daughter to this swamp where the dragon is living. And um, she's dressed in a wedding gown because that's, of course. And, and uh, St. George, George prances along. And he sees her standing there and he's like, well, that's convenient. I'm looking for a wife. Uh, here's one fully dressed, ready to go, which it's hard to get them to that state, by the way. She had had a venue picked out. She, anyway, uh, it was all done. Uh, so so uh, he's like, well, this is ideal. Here, here she is. So he begins to talk to her and uh, she says, go away. There's a dragon. He's going to come and eat me. Just let him eat me. And George is like, no, that's terrible. I'm not going to let this dragon eat you. And so he waits for the dragon to emerge from the, the swamp throws his spear, kills or, or wounds the dragon, uh, winds up carrying the dragon, leading the dragon back into town, and he does what all crusaders, uh, crusading legends do. He's like, if you want me to kill the dragon, you all have to become Christians. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so, and so, the, so this is like, you know, seeker-sensitive church 101 right here. <laughs> you know, like a tractional church. Like, if you want me to kill this dragon, you all have to become Christians. So the story ends with like, like 10,000 people becoming Christians. And you're like, well, what does that have to do with our text? Well, pretty much from this point forward in the book of Acts, all you're going to get are heroic outsider tales. And basically all I mean by that is you're just going to have story after story after story of someone like Peter coming into a town, you know, Mandalorian style, and solving a problem, right? Coming into a town and solving a problem, slaying a dragon. That's the that's the baseline of the dragon tale, is 
uh, an outsider wanders into a town and solves a problem that they can't solve. And so in this text, we have two of those kinds of problems. And the first one is, is a paralyzed man named Aeneas. And then the second one is this, this woman named Dorcas slash Talitha who, who has died. And in both cases, Peter is this St. George figure uh, where he wanders, he, he finds himself there and, and, and is called to, by circumstances, to solve a problem that they cannot solve. And this is what you're going to see every chapter pretty much of Acts moving forward is going to be some kind of heroic visitor story. A lot of them with Paul. So I, I want to talk about this a little bit just, just because this, I think, gives us clarity about, well, what should I set my life about? And what, what direction should I make my life about? Because once I make my life about a certain direction, momentum's going to take care of the rest. And I really believe that this idea of being a dragon slayer isn't an accidental myth that just sort of happened, but that it was a central identity. It was a central way of describing what a Christian should be. That that's, that, that, that uh, it's a thousand years of, people saying this is what a Christian should be. They should be dragon slayers. And I want to, I want to think about that a little bit this morning. Uh, so the idea is that there, the world is full of dragons, and by dragons we don't mean you know literal dragons, but, but, but generally in all of these stories, including the ones in Scripture, dragons are of three kinds. They're either sins, sicknesses, or bullies. So those are usually your three kinds of dragons that you'll see. <laughs> in the world and in, in the scriptures. And in fact, a lot of the dragon mythology is that, um, is that there's a dragon that lives outside of town and he has a poisonous gas that he breathes. And then every <laughs> once in a while, this poisonous gas comes into the city and a bunch of people get sick, which is kind of an ancient way of thinking about a plague or a pandemic. So this is the, these are the kind of three typical dragons you'll find, sin, sicknesses, and bullies. But I think the most important thing to get, and we're almost spending a long time on this, the most important thing to get about this is, is, the, is the, the features of the dragon stories are all consistent. The first one is, I have a problem that I can't seem to solve. That problem is a dragon. It gets bigger and demands more. So I had a problem with X sin when I was 15 alone, you know, on my dad's computer or something. I had a problem and it was this big, but because I didn't face it and I compromised with it, it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That's one of the features of the dragon story. And then this idea of eating children is super common. It's like, well, what does that have to do? Well, children represent the future. And so when, when you have a dragon in your life, the, the idea is like this dragon is actually threatening my future because it keeps grow it keeps growing the more I compromise with it, it the bigger it gets and it's actually threatening my future uh, there's a dehumanization piece of this so like in the, in the myth that we just looked at uh, the villagers won't let the king buy his way out of this you know they're literally feeding their, they've, they've literally created a bureaucracy for feeding children to dragons like like and the idea there is that the dragon will make you less more and more ashamed of yourself the longer you interact with this dragon, the more ashamed of yourself you'll be because you'll be crossing lines you never thought you'd cross. And, and the idea is, is that at some point you've compromised so extensively with this dragon 
and it's cost you so much and it basically has your number that you get to a point where you have to have an outsider, someone outside the situation to come in and help you with the strategy. And here's the other interesting thing is you might initially tell that person, that outsider to go away. That's the other interesting thing about these stories. So the, the, the woman that's on the edge to be consumed, she tells George to go away. So you'll see that in Acts a lot. People are desperate, they're living in darkness, they're living in sin, but when Paul comes, they tell him to leave. Dragons dominate in such a way that you actually essentially get used to them and you are afraid of what the world would look like without them. So these are just basic ideas built into dragon stories. And all of this is pointing to, back to the text, and that is, is that Jesus is the heroic stranger. Right? Jesus is the heroic stranger. He is the heroic outsider. And this is, this is really our first sermon in a series of Christmas sermons about the incarnation. And it's really just saying time and time again, Jesus is the outsider who destroys that which we can no longer destroy, that which has grown beyond our capacity to manage, that which dehumanizes us, that which makes us ashamed of ourselves, that which propels us into guilt. Like, Jesus is the great dragon slayer. And this has been predicted all the way back, beginning in the book of Genesis. And so all of these medieval myths are transparently references to Jesus. There's even one of these medieval myths of a guy, of a, of a knight that slays a dragon. This is funny. He slays a dragon, he frees a people, but he gets in trouble. Why? Because he slayed the dragon on a Sunday, right? So all of these stories are just transparent nods to what Jesus is and what Jesus does. Jesus is the, the heroic stranger coming from outside to inside to deal with the thing which dehumanizes, to deal with the thing which is demanding our future. You know, Genesis 3.15, this, this is all baked into the original story of original sin where God promises that through Eve, he says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, the, the snake, the dragon. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. She shall, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus is this long desired heroic stranger who comes into the village known as earth and deals with sin, sickness, and bullies. Isaiah 27, verse 1, is fast becoming one of my favorite dragon verses in the Bible. And it's, it's not, it's, it's really, I'm only going to read verse 1, but I'll probably cover this next week. Verse 1 and 2, sweet, sweet, sweet promise. Isaiah 27, 1, In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So what does all this have to do with Acts chapter 9, verses 31 through 43? Well, these days, and I, by these days, I mean right away, beginning in Acts, Jesus does almost all of his dragon slaying <laughs> through human instruments. That's where, that's where he wields his sword. And he said that he would do this through the disciples repeatedly. And he said that he would do this through the church. 
And so these days, the world is no less full of dragons in many respects. There's still plenty of sins to deal with and sicknesses to contend with and, and bullies to deal with. But these days, and Jesus is no less interested in defeating the dragons, but these days, beginning in the days of Acts, Jesus uses people, his disciples, to do this work. And you can see that in Acts chapter 9, verse 34, where Peter says to Aeneas, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Peter's just an instrument. And this gets back to my introduction and the whole idea of like, can you just set one direction for your life and then let momentum take care of the rest? And this is the direction. Would you be a, an instrument in the hand of the Lord God to be the heroic outsider in other people's lives and help them deal with the things that are taking their future? And then dehumanizing them and making them feel stuck and making them rue the day so long ago when they first compromised with that dragon. Could you just be a St. George? And my argument would be that if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be a St. George. That's the only option. Because this is what Jesus is doing. And to be a Christian means to do that which Jesus does. The power of Jesus. And so if you set your... And I think this is the conversation my wife and I had on that road years ago was we didn't know we were signing up for dragon slaying, but that's the idea. It's like we just decided these are the things that matter. Let's do this. And when you go in those directions, the word and people, well, what you find is that the word becomes a sword and that there are a lot of people who are bound with some bargain they made a dragon years prior. And so Jesus is the great dragon slayer. He is the heroic stranger. And he still is doing that work, but he's doing that work through us like he's doing it through Peter. And you can see time and time again in Scripture that this is the idea of the Christian life. Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you say, well, what is the pleasure of God? Well, at least significantly, the pleasure of God is to kill dragons. Hebrews 13, 20. Now, now may the God of peace, who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, who brought, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Paul says in Colossians 1, 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And I left one of the, the St. George pieces out of the story. It's like, well, how did the dragon get into town? So St. George wounds the dragon, and then he tells the bride, take the belt that signifies your virginity, and use it as a lasso around the serpent's neck and carry him back into town. And so, like, even St. George knows to get the girl involved, you know? Like, he's like, he's like I'm, I want to do this, but I'm also going to make someone else my partner. And that's part of the gospel story is Jesus. Jesus, of course, has done all of the work, but he has this husbandly wisdom that says, it's not, I'm not going to only do the work. I'm going to involve my bride in the work. And so St. George tells this girl, use your belt and, and, and tie it around his neck. And she does it. And then she, and then he winds up being led into town like a pet 
instantly submissive. And that's the belt of truth, by the way, in Ephesians. It's the same belt that's being described in Ephesians. So that's the idea is that Jesus is, is already doing this and you're setting out and you're figuring out whether you're 40 or 20 and you're figuring out or 50, whether you're figuring out or 60, hey, what should I make my life about? This. People outside of your immediate circle have dragons. They have problems that they have unexpectedly seen grown and dominate their lives in ways that they can no longer on their own attend to. And don't be surprised if while they need your help, they say like the, like the, like the girl at the pond did, the dragon pond did, go away, go away. Don't be surprised if that's the first instinct. That's okay. Just, you know who did that? Peter did that to Jesus. And he said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. You know, that's okay. They're going to say that. Just, just, just show up again. Not because you have the answers. Not because, not because you have the strength. But because the one who lives within you, who saved you, and ordained great works for you, so that you could walk in them, this is what he's about. And if you, like Peter, just said oh, yes to the first one, it wouldn't be surprising if then the, the second one was right around the corner, and then there's a third one, and then before you know it, you're 20 years into momentum. But it was the good kind, because you said yes to the right thing at the front end. This is, this is just the way God wants to do things. Revelation chapter 12. This great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So partnership here. The, the sweetest, um, manliest reading of peace in the whole Bible is in Romans 16, 20, where at the end of this epic piece of art that is the book of Romans, Paul writes to the church, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. It's like, Monster truck. It's like it's like Hallmark Channel, Monster Truck Channel, right? Together. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is what he's about. And this, I think, is what he's inviting us into. Week after week after week after week, when we open his word, what he's inviting us into is something beyond a merely therapeutic gospel that assuages our, our fears but he's inviting us into an actual adventure in which he causes us to wander into the lives of others in his providential wisdom, people who need somebody to slay a dragon for them. So just end with three dragon slaying, three hot dragon slaying tips. First one is this, see your peace, see your peace. Verse 31 is key 
to this entire understanding. See your peace. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit had multiplied. Now, why is that key? Because Peter has time to travel. He has the freedom here in this particular moment. A window of opportunity has been opened for him. And Peter has an opportunity now to go out into the rest of the land and strengthen churches and spread the gospel. I would really hate it if we look back 10 years from now and said, boy, 2020 was actually a pretty peaceful year where I had tons of opportunities to invest in other people and I blew it. Like, we think this is hard, but compared to what? There still is in this moment plenty of peace and plenty of opportunity and plenty of window. And it's in these particular moments when we have the peace, when we have the prosperity, when we have the opportunity, we ought to say, what am I going to do with that? What is the temptation? Of course, the temptation when you have a moment of ease and respite, especially after several hard years like Peter had just experienced, the temptation, of course, is to sit back and say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna take a break. And you know, there's there's certainly, I'm sure, I'm sure we don't have it in our text, but I'm sure like there is a moment where Peter is on a lounge chair next to a pool in between verses 31 and 32. Like some rest is appropriate. Uh, we have these human bodies and need to do that. But but I want you to notice that if you've made the decision about what you want your life to be about, and you you want your life to be in the, of the dragon slaying variety, then these moments where you have freedom and time and money and health and whatever else you have, these moments, make the most of them. Make the most of them. Number two, see your specialty. Peter has been presented in the scriptures up until this point as a man who has the gift of healing. And I want it to be understood that you don't need to have the gift of healing to be a dragon slayer because dragons come in all shapes and sizes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're just reminded here amongst many other places that each of us, in, if, you're, if you're using dragon slaying terminology, that we each have certain dragons that we're better at than others. We each have gifts that, that align with people's needs and their crisis and, and so on and so forth. Peter has this kind of unusual gift of healing, so much so that in chapter 5, People with sick people, sick friends, are putting him out, putting them out in the street so that Peter's shadow could just touch them and heal them. Barnabas is presented not as a healing guy so much, but as a guy who has a gift of faith and a gift of generosity. And then Paul, you know, yeah, he does some healing, but Paul's really more of the intellectual, I'm going to tell you why there is a Jesus kind of thing. I'm going to tell you that Jesus is the Christ. You see different people with different gifts. And those gifts just align with the different dragons that are in the world. And God will lead you to the ones that you have unique capacity or calling to contend with. And, and finally, see the goal. Both of these stories, the story in Lydda, Lydda and the story in Joppa, both end the same way. Verse 35, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. That's the goal. The goal is, is we're not just social activists trying to make the world a better place, but we are dragon fighters who 
maybe do what George did, but a little less coercively. Hey, I killed your dragon. I'm gonna kill your dragon. I'm, I'm trying to help you kill your dragon. Won't you believe in the name of the Lord? The goal of all of this is to make much of Jesus. The goal of all of this is to show the world that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. I landed on this this St. George storyline because he really was a real person. The myth that I told you was invented around the 11th, 10th or 11th century. But he actually lived in somewhere around 300 something AD. And here's the crazy thing. And this is how I got onto this. All of that stuff wound up being, you know, added extra, extra myth. But he really was a man who really lived in the town of Lydda, who came to faith in Christ because his parents were came to faith in Christ because his grandparents came. He came from a long line of Christians, Christians who were brought to Christ through this actual historic visit of Peter. And so this really was a real man, and he he was actually a Christian martyr who was a soldier in the Roman army who refused to give worship to the Caesar of the moment. And so St. George, there's all these myths involved, and that will happen to you and I too. Like We'll look back at our lives and we might mythologize it a little bit here or there, but he really was a man, and he really was a Christian, and he came to faith in Christ because of Peter's visit. Peter's visit to this town led many to faith, led the town to faith in Jesus. This town wound up becoming renowned as a hub of Christendom, and George comes along a few generations later and slips just as many of you, children of faith, children raised by Christian parents, into the faith, becomes a soldier in the Roman army, and then refuses to bend the knee to Caesar and dies. And that's why he's known. The myth came much later. What he's known for is being a faithful Christian being a Christian who would not bend the knee. And I think it's okay to, to look at that and make a dragon out of that because, like I said, nothing we do is ordinary. Not really. All of it is far more fantastic than we dare believe. Let me pray.